0: We're going to be back in Nehemiah chapter 4. So open your Bibles and uh, we'll dig in as we are in our second of 3 weeks that look at the nature of the opposition that Satan throws our way when we get serious about the things of God. Whenever God's at work, Satan's at work. Satan's perfectly happy as long as we're just worried about us and our stuff and We're in our silos, but we step out believing that God's called us to bring the message of the gospel, but not just the message, but the hands and feet of Jesus to bring about good in our city in the name of Jesus. It's going to get Satan's attention. Last week, we looked at the opposers to the things of God as the children of Israel are attempting to rebuild the wall. We saw analogies for the types of individuals that may come against the church. But today we're going to look at the, the, the types of opposition that we face. At least we're going to look at two of the three strategies that Satan uses in his opposition in your life as individuals, in the life of any individual church, but also against the whole people of God, the, the Christian church universal of which we're a part. And those three strategies are first of all the obvious, the direct approach, (laughs) the frontal assault. The second, and often the most effective, is more the subversive, working from the inside, the old divide and conquer method. And then next week we'll look at the third strategy that Satan often uses, and that is to attempt to cut off the body of Christ at its head by attacking the leadership. Never is the leadership of any church, its pastor, or the other leaders more open to the attacks of the enemy than when we are attempting to move God's people into the mission that God's called us to. It's interesting. Thousands of years separate us from the story of Nehemiah, technologies, political systems, and yet Satan has been attacking the work of God in the same way all this time. And you know why? It works. But we're gonna learn through Nehemiah that we can counter this, we can stand firm, we can stay true, true to the task, and we can complete it with God's help. And so I'm gonna just read the first part of the chapter to begin with. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah, the Ammonite, who was at his side said, what they are building, even a fox climbing upon it, would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. And so we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. So the first type of outside opposition falls under the category of ridicule. And the ridicule that we face is twofold. We are ridiculed as people. It's what Sanballat said, those feeble Jews. And then our work is ridiculed, useless and futile and and poor in quality, And, and that's often the kind of attacks we receive. I was thinking about our college students in this city. Worcester's a great college town. We have some of the best institutions in the nation and in the world here. But many of you who are Christian students right now know the difficulty of maintaining your Christian faith in classrooms and on your campus. And one of the arguments is that Christians are feeble-minded. Only feeble-minded people think these things, not enlightened people. Only foolish, weak-willed people accept what the Bible says. And for many of us, that ridicule is enough we're done just the thought that people would call us names we're all kind of like that character on Saturday Night live years ago where the guy looks in the mirror and says you're smart enough you're good enough and darn it people like you we all have a desperate need for that and all it takes is a little ridicule to shut most christians down and there was an effect on the people If you look at verse 10, you see a glimpse of this. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. So they begin believing the ridicule. What were we thinking? What were we thinking to think we can do this? And because they're beginning to see the futility of it, the fatigue is starting to set in, right? You can have an awful lot of energy when you believe in something, We uh, came into the space July 1st, 12 weeks later we opened up for services, and you know why that was possible? Because a whole bunch of people believed in this so much that they worked full-time and then they came here and worked full-time getting this space ready, and they had endless energy. Why? Because they believed in the mission. Stop believing in it and exhaustion sets in, discouragement sets in. So how did Nehemiah respond to this ridicule? Two words, prayer and persistence. Notice in verse four, Nehemiah goes back and forth almost seamlessly from telling his story into prayer. Prayer is such a part of his life that it's just part of his conversation. You ever been around somebody like that? There's there's such prayer warriors that you'll be talking to them and suddenly together you're talking to God. How did this happen? Nehemiah. He was such a man of prayer that when issues came, he just talked to God about it. If you were with him, you were going to talk to God about it. I love people like that. I want to be a person like that. The nature of his prayer is very important. He turned over His feelings and his desire to argue back to God. You see, we don't do that. One of the sad things about evangelical Christianity in America is that we have chosen rather than to hand those who ridicule us over to God and let God deal with them, we have chosen to engage in a war of words. I've hit on this a lot and and I'm sorry if I do because I just feel like we're shooting ourselves in the foot as Christians, the way we engage in social media and even in uh, editorial media, in political comment. We feel like the right thing to do if people insult us is to insult back, oh we don't call it that. But we're playing the same game. They call us feeble-minded, we're gonna show you how feeble-minded you are. We respond in kind. Nehemiah didn't do that. And neither did Jesus to his accusers. For the joy before him, he endured the cross and the shame. That's the second thing Nehemiah did. First of all, in prayer, he turned his emotions, his desire to argue to God and trust God to deal with them. But then... They were persistent in the mission. I love that phrase. It says, we built the wall to half its size, even in the face of all this ridicule, because the people worked with all their heart. One translation says, they were of a mind to work. That's good. When I think about doing something with all my heart, what it means is nothing is distracting me. It has my full passion and attention because they were able to release their desire to engage in verbal debate and argument with those who were accusing them to have a war of words because they turned that over to God. It allowed them to let go of it and focus on the task. And because of that, they made progress. How do you deal with ridicule? I'm guessing there are people here who have never shared the gospel with anybody for fear that they'd call you feeble-minded. You've lost. You've lost before you've even started fighting, because Satan's got a lot more in his arsenal than that. You were easy pickings. But if we learn to stand strong and give those things to God, expect more. We see the second type of outside opposition, and that's the threat of physical Harm. We pick up now in verse 7. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's wall had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. And then the Jews who lived near their enemies came and told us, listen to this, told us 10 times over, Wherever you turn, they will attack us. So I just want to focus on that before we back up. Ten times over, you know, you know what Nehemiah is capturing here? They were fixated on this threat. Threat to our well-being has that effect. It can, it can really paralyze us. And we see this happening, and it's important that you understand the extent of the threat. Israel at this point is completely surrounded by its enemies. The people that are listed in verse seven represent every bordering nation or state. The Samaritans were to the north, the Ammonites were to the east, the Arabs to the south, and the people of Ashdod were to the west. So, and this is culturally important and relevant to us, so in the same way it is today, in the time of Nehemiah, Israel was surrounded by people who were committed to their destruction. So just so you understand from a biblical concept, when we think about the Middle East, we think about the conflict there, and we try to apply our experience being a relatively young nation, you have to recognize that we have no concept of the age-old conflict that is taking place there. For millennium, Israel has been in the middle of nations that seek nothing but its destruction. That's how old this conflict is. And in Nehemiah's day, at this point, they're without defense because the walls have not been built. So that was the nature of the threat. And it did have the effect of bringing fear and demoralization. And they said, wherever we are, they will kill us. They will come when we least expect it, which means that the enemies were actually planning a a form of terrorism. Not in the way great armies go to battle. They weren't going to lay siege to the city. They were going to sneak up. Terror was a part of their strategy because fear paralyzes us. So how, how does Nehemiah... Uh, and therefore, the people respond. Let's, let's read from verse 13 to the end of the chapter. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your families your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work While the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor, the officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, The work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there, and our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half of the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out, At that time I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so that they can serve as guards by night and as workers by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. We could spend all day looking at how Nehemiah responded and led the people to respond to physical threats. But we're going to break it down to four aspects. And the first was that Nehemiah turned Jerusalem into an armed camp. Now, we're going to see as we wrap up and talk about some of the implications for us today that we can learn as much from how Nehemiah did not respond as what he did. And it's very important that you take note of the fact that even though they took up arms, they never went on the offense. I find it's interesting to note that Nehemiah did not get distracted by the threats even while he prepared with proper defenses. You see, we don't do that. We see possible harm, and our tendency is to go to war. Nehemiah understood that wasn't the mission. The mission wasn't to go fight the enemies. The mission was to build the wall. If you look at Ephesians 6, which we won't go to for sake of time today, but it's a very relevant scripture for the idea of how we are to arm ourselves. You read that and you recognize the whole purpose of putting on the full armor of God is rooted in these words, that you will stand against the attacks of the enemy, that you will stand firm. The idea is to stand our ground. And that's why we arm ourselves. Ephesians 6 would be a great place for you to go to look at what that would mean for us today. In Nehemiah's day, it quite literally meant, praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. The second thing that Nehemiah does is focus on maintaining a strong faith. Look at how he encourages and exhorts the people when he says to them, the Lord will fight for us. I said, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. In order to build their faith, Nehemiah reminds them of who is fighting for them and that's a God who is greater than any enemy but he also reminds them of who they are fighting for. Here's the thing, when we are doing what we know is the mission of God, Nehemiah's words are true for us today. We can count on the fact that God will prosper our work, as he says in chapter two, and God will fight for us. God is in the battle with us, no such guarantee when you're living by your own priorities, by the way. All right, on to the third way he responded, and that was to use an effective strategy. This is why Nehemiah is the right person to be leading this part of the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra had his place as the prophet, the preacher, the the motivator of the people of God will play a role again later on in the book of Nehemiah. But right now, What is needed is visional, strategic leadership. And Nehemiah is the right person in the right place for this. He works a plan. Four layers to this strategy. First, the leadership is behind the people, literally, physically stationed behind the people to encourage, to, to bless, and to motivate them. Then there are those that are ready for battle and on guard, and that's all they're doing. They're holding their sword, holding their bow and their shield, and they're ready if the enemy comes. Then there are those who are bringing the supplies to the wall, and they're half and half. They're holding a sword with one hand, and they're carrying supplies with the other. Then there are those who, because of those other layers, are still armed, their their weapons are at their side, but their hands are free and they devote themselves completely to the task. It would be interesting to have a conversation and look at how those layers exist when we pursue our mission. There are, there are those as leaders who are to equip the saints to the work of ministry, to stand behind them, to root them on, to cheer, to keep a, keep a watch, making sure that we're pursuing the mission as God wanted. There are those who are called to be warriors of prayer. They are to be on watch and doing spiritual battle. There are those that resource and support and encourage, and then there are those that just dive into the task and use their gifts to get her done. We need all of these activities because together they allow us to stand firm against the threats but also stay focused on the task. And then the fourth response is that we can never speak enough of the importance of a godly leadership. Nehemiah and his team of leaders do not ask anyone under them to do what they themselves are not willing and ready to do. I mean, they are so committed to this task. It took 52 days to build the wall, and they didn't even change their clothes. That's what he's saying. I imagine that there'd be a little laughter there in looking back. Man, did we smell when it was over. What's he saying? We were so committed. We modeled commitment to the task that we never left our post. We need that kind of leadership in the church today. I'm not just talking about my role or Pastor Lou's role or, or staff. All of the leadership here, life group leaders, ministry leaders, it's not a a reward, it's not a position of privilege, it's a calling. Your job is to do what Jesus did, be a servant leader. Get smelly because you're in the work with people. That's what we aspire to be here. All right, so that's about facing outside opposition, ridicule and physical threats, we we learn that when the enemies heard that they had been exposed and that such measures had been taken, they backed down. But now we move into chapter chapter 5 and we see a different type of opposition. And that's from inside, internal conflict. I want to read just the first seven verses or eight verses of chapter five. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. And when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I said to them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So here's the nature of the internal conflict. The exploiting of the poor within the community of God. The leaders and the privileged were using their position for personal gain at the expense of the poor and the underprivileged. Now that's always wrong, but it's particularly horrendous when it happens in the spiritual Community. These were the nobles, the elders, who were using their position to result in what tends to happen when God is not in charge, and that is the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Now, let me just give you a quick understanding of how it got here. When the remnant returned to the promised land, they all came with a great amount of resources. And all of that was dispersed equally. Everyone who came back returned to the land of their ancestors. And so at the beginning, everyone was on equal territory. But then things happen. Crops fail. Certain areas get the rain. Other areas don't. People have physical crisis and trauma. And sometimes people aren't able to make ends meet. And instead of coming along and helping... People with influence lent money, but they did it in a way that profited themselves. When they couldn't make payments or interest, they took over the land, which then made it impossible for these people to pay the taxes, and all they had left was to send their children into indentured servitude, into slavery. That's what they were doing, which is completely contrary to the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law forbade people from taking advantage of their Jewish brothers and sisters. In fact, every seven years, all debts were reset. It just kind of hit the reboot button, and all land was returned. And so in our day and age of capitalism, you say, well, then who would loan money? <laughs> that's not why I loan money. It's an investment. Well, you see, but that's the problem. That's not why the people of Israel would loan money. They were to loan as a blessing to the person. In a way that had in mind the fact that there's a limited window here. God had said through Moses, "If you follow my laws, if you do it right, there will never be a hungry person among you." God had planned for the children of Israel to take care of one another. But yet they took advantage of those who were underprivileged, and so it was a system in which the rich got richer and the poor got poorer. Now, when you read the ancient structure of the Jewish society, one thing it is not is a capitalist society. It's also not a socialist society, especially right now because uh, we're in the political season and never before has the polarization of our views Been more clear than our current debate. Israel was not a democracy and it wasn't socialism. Israel was a theocracy. God was in charge (laughs) and He said, We take care of one another. It's a whole different animal altogether. But as a people of God, that's how we are to be with one another. Now, let me just say something else that I'm on my soapbox now. I recognize I get to say things like this that you would just have to listen to. Pastors who are driving around jets and Rolls Royces and wearing gold and custom-made silk suits are the equivalent to the nobles of Nehemiah's day. What they're doing is promoting a type of faith that is actually a pyramid scheme. Think about it. They live in wealth, and they say, I'm modeling the blessing of God, but they're living in wealth because somebody at the bottom of the pyramid is giving to that, hoping that because they're giving, they'll end up on the top of the pyramid someday. It's a scam, and the same response that Nehemiah has to this ought to be our response to these charlatans. So now let me tell you what I really think about that. (laughs) Our job is to be Jesus in how we lead, not Solomon. How did Nehemiah respond to this? Just very quickly. The first was godly anger. There's a place to be angry. Just like Jesus was. Jesus reserved his anger not for the lost and the pagans or even those who crucified him. He actually begged his father to forgive them. He got angry at money changers in the temple who abused the people of God for their own profit. He got angry at religious leaders who were hypocrites. There's a place for that, but he didn't work quickly out of that. He paused and he considered. Once he had gotten control and channeled that anger, once he had a plan, then he asserted himself. So there was thoughtful and assertive exhortation. He calls it for what it is, and he calls them to make it right. One of the hardest things of spiritual leadership is to call out God's people when they need to hear it. One of the things that keeps us from saying the hard things, or at least did for me years ago, was just the sense of who am I to say it? Or worse yet, this fear that you wouldn't like me anymore. I'm learning, and you've been victims, not victims, you've been blessed. You've been blessed by my willingness to say some hard things, to call us to consider what is the right thing to do. Nehemiah had the courage to do that, and because of that, the third thing was he was able to bring about corrective action. Calls to the nobles to give everything back. Let's reset this so that we can start following the ways of God. And then finally, Nehemiah demonstrates model conduct. Were we to read farther into the chapter, and I encourage you to do that, especially for your life group conversations that are coming up, you will see that Nehemiah personally modeled the very way of dealing with people that he was asking the other leaders to do. He, first of all, did not take advantage of what the Persian laws gave him the right to do, which was to uh, tax the people in order to care for himself and to profit because of his position. He never did that his whole time. Secondly, he used his own resources to feed not only his leaders but many people. He was careful to live in such a way that his life mirrored his message. There's nothing more important than the people of God being united because we're stronger together. Now, just very quickly, I want to take these three types of attacks and talk about some implications for us today. First, in regard to dealing with ridicule. Remember, our tendency right now, because everything's bites, everything is social media, everything is editorial, our tendency right now when the Christian faith or when Christians are ridiculed is to engage in a war of words. To return sarcasm for sarcasm, to belittle other points of view, to create enemies out of people that we are to reach with the love of Christ by how we go about engaging. We are not to join in on the war of words. Instead, we need to do what Nehemiah did. We need to turn that over to God. Say, Lord, you deal with the accusers, and I'm going to stay focused on the mission. I know I've been hitting on this a lot, but it's because I'm embarrassed by the way Christians are conducting themselves on Facebook and and in the news and, and on YouTube. We are engaged in a war of words rather than staying focused on what the real mission is. Can't do both. Our best argument for those that ridicule us is to do the work of God, to do justly, to love mercy, walk humbly with our God. That's your best argument against those who ridicule us. Do you understand that? I'm encouraging you once again to rethink how some of you are engaging. It's okay to be in political debate. There's nothing wrong with that. But make sure you're doing it in a way that Jesus' love somehow is not lost in it because that's your first mission. Let's talk about how we respond to threats. When threats come to our faith by virtue of immoral things that are happening in our society, the types of things that we're concerned for the well-being of our faith and our ability to worship God, our tendency is to go on the offense, to make that the priority. We need to fix this. We need to create an environment where we can live out our faith without this opposition. And so we get engaged in a cultural war. We go to battle against these things and they subtly replace the real mission to which we are called. How many of you uh, have read the book Screwtape Letters? Please read it. Written by C.S. Lewis during World War II in England. Actually a series of newspaper articles that then were collected as a book. Incredibly relevant for how the enemy works. Screwtape is the Overseer of Wormwood, who is a demon who has been assigned to this young man in Britain, who unfortunately, despite all of Wormwood's efforts, becomes a Christian. And now the goal is to derail him. And at one point, and you have to remember, this was one of those big moral debates in Britain during that time. At one point, the new Christian young man gets really caught up in the pacifist movement. So in the same way, we have very relevant moral debates going on in our society about abortion, marriage, social justice, bigotry, all these different things that we do need to address. The big thing was the war in that period, and there were those who said they were the patriots, and they said it is God's will that we fight Hitler. And there were others who were the pacifists, and they said, It is God's will that we lay down our arms. They both were committed to it out of Christian conviction. He is persuaded towards the pacifist cause. And Wormwood is uneasy about that because that sounds awfully Christian. Screwtape writes to him about it and says, You know, it's not a problem at all. You can win either way. Here's what he says. Whichever he adopts, your main task will be the same. Let him begin by treating the patriotism or the pacifism as part of his religion. Then let him, under the influence of partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part. Then quietly and gradually nurse him onto the stage at which the religion becomes merely part of the cause And Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce in favor of the British war effort or against it. Think about that. Now I want to be careful because I think I may have overplayed what I'm about to say to to leave the indication in the first service that I don't think we should be involved in social justice issues. I mean, if you haven't heard that by now in this church, you know it. We are to work to bring the kingdom of God. We are to work to bring the shalom peace, and we are to address these things. But the issue is that we are a people on a singular mission. And when these other issues become so important to us that they become the mission, Satan wins. Satan wins. And when we fight the war to change our society, especially the moral war, by protest and working to change laws, try to fight it that way, that cultural war, and when that becomes so much our focus that that's how the world sees us, Satan wins. Satan wins because that becomes our faith. Christianity just becomes the context, the the talking points for that. Here's the thing. We have one mission and we are to be focused on that mission. When we work to bring about change in our society, it has to grow out of our true mission. It can't replace that mission because when it replaces that mission, we get mean just like everybody else. We get off focus, you see? We need to stand firm with the armor of God through fervent prayer and we need to stay focused on the true mission, which is transforming people and culture through the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's so subtle. The real gospel brings us to reconcile culture and the world to God. It's, it's a ministry of reconciliation. But we need to be careful that the application of the gospel does not become the mission so that in the end, nothing is accomplished for eternity. Because that's the mission. It's about transform lives, transform people through the gospel. Stay on task. One of the things you hear in this story is that no matter what attacks happen, what do the people of God do? They return to the wall. They return to the wall. They never lose focus on the mission. May that be true of us. Amen? Due to the time, I'm just going to have you stand. I'm going to bless you and dismiss you. Then you can go downstairs and argue about everything I said today. (laughs) Good coffee, good fresh baked goods, and good discussion. Just remember, be nice. Father, thank you so much for your word. Again, it's amazing how relevant this ancient story is to us today. We see how we can fall prey to the attacks of the enemy, even believing we're doing the good work, and lose focus on the true mission. So, Father, help us to be focused today, to be bold, to know that when we are pursuing what we know to be the work of God, whether it's proclaiming the gospel, whether it's for working out of that gospel uh, for social good and change in our city, Father, may we be confident that when we are pursuing what we know is your will, you are with us, you fight for us, and we can be strong in you. In Jesus' name, amen.